And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Go check them out. They're doing some incredible work over there. This is a special episode. Although I've done enough of these episodes that maybe this is the normal episode, but I always like saying it's a special episode because it's a full-length interview with Kat Kedungog, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship. My name is Stefan Hostetter. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Stefan. So excited to be here today. So by way of introduction, how did you get interested in environmentalism? I would love to say that it was a concerted effort and a huge dream, but if I'll be frank, it was completely random. My entire upbringing and my, I would say my younger youth, Zier, I have my quotation marks up, is was really actually focused on social justice and the intersection of that between entrepreneurship. So I was really working on things such as legal justice, health justice, poverty alleviation, I did systems work on prescription drug access for low-income communities. I was very attuned with my local context and what I wanted to do in terms of an entrepreneurship type of role. But I think through that, what really inspired me was this idea of education and community building and seeing education as, you know, this low-hanging fruit for community action, right? Like, it's really hard to activate on social justice issues unless you know what they are and then how to actually organize within them. So coming out of this kind of social justice sphere, I kind of really want to engage in schools with young folks and kind of teach them the ropes about social justice. And that's when I actually joined the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship, because at the time there was a posting on being a community project consultant, a mentor specifically for high school students in rural, remote and indigenous areas. And then what I quickly found through that work is that climate had an overwhelming impact all of these social justice issues, whether it was poverty, whether you know it was health justice, whether it was housing and affordability, climate was going to affect every aspect of our lives. And then especially talking to rural and remote communities that were most affected by it, I just found that there was a societal imperative to do something about it. And that was my entry into environmentalism. So I love to say that it was a little bit by accident and also a little bit by necessity and an interest in knowing that climate is so, you know, intersectional with community, it was an inevitable, I think. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think it resonates probably with a lot of people working in the climate sphere, because the further you get into it, the more you do start seeing it everywhere. You know, like we have an interview in, I guess it's coming out in two weeks, but I happened to do it earlier this week with Amy Westervelt, who is a climate journalist. And one of the things that she was talking about when I asked her how to sort of keep climate news new and interesting, because for a long time, it feels like we're just sort of saying the same stuff. The earth is still getting hotter. The oil companies yes. still aren't doing things. You know, like you have a lot of stills in our in our language is is to see the climate angle in everything else. And the further you in, the more you are seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was thinking about this one time that we worked with a school in it's one of the northernmost places that you can drive to in what's currently referred to as Canada. And it's so fascinating because it's they're experiencing climate impacts there already. So it's an indigenous group. It's the furthest you can drive north to. And people are already being displaced as, you know, coasts begin to recede into, into land. And then we look into what's happening in the Northwest Territories with the wildfires. We looked at what happened in Alberta with the wildfires. We looked at what's happening in Maui and the destruction that's happening there. And it's fascinating to me because these are all climate impacts, but they're being compounded by these inequalities. And people that are going to be refugees of these climate impacts, well, guess what? They won't have access to the same resources as other people. So I think, you know, this climate crisis really sheds light on the injustices and magnifies what we're doing in society that allows this type of problem to persist and not having a social safety net for people to fall down there. Yeah, for sure. And I want to get a bit into your background in a second from business and commerce. But before I do, I do want to take that thought you had there a little bit further, because it's really interesting to sort of already see the way that there's a disaster capitalism is playing out, say, in places like Maui, where you're hearing people who are just displaced getting phone calls from realtors trying to buy their land while they're all 
currently experiencing the grief of losing everything they have, you know, or other people they're being interviewed talking about how the tourists are still just treating Hawaii like a destination, even again, the day after these terrible fires. And it does speak to that sort of magnifying impact, right? Like every time a massive fire burns down where people are currently living, the chance and opportunity for a company to come in and snatch it up and then, you know, do something else with it or or do what they want with it is huge because you're so vulnerable in those moments. Like, like we don't have the safety net to protect these people who are being displaced. And so they're a perfect target for this sort of type of disaster capitalism. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like we've positioned the climate crisis as a see some people see it as it's unveiling the inequities that are happening in society some people say are saying that well it's unveiling the fact that we need more rich people to put in protection systems to to protect everybody because they're the superheroes of this world which it's just fundamentally untrue we would not be in this position in the first place if it wasn't for greed capitalism colonialism and wealth that has been taken to this extent so far and it's just fascinating to me that while realtors are buying properties in Maui, at the same time, properties in Alaska and Florida are being uninsured. And there's this cognitive dissonance between the reality of what the climate crisis is going to bring and how it's going to unfold in a lot of these communities and what these people with money are doing because they can do things because they have money. It reached this level of absurdity, I found lately, when people are responding to the climate crisis. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, insurance terrifies me. Like the way the insurance companies and them pulling out of places like they recently, an insurance company or maybe multiple insurance companies recently said they weren't going to provide fire insurance to live in California. We're already seeing in other places with flood insurance and stuff like that or storms. And like you can easily see the writing on the wall of you're going to stop insuring some of these places. So the housing prices will go down. The only people who have to live in those places will be poorer people. They will then own that land, which will constantly be destroyed by different disasters, which means they won't be able to build up any wealth, which means that they will, in a constant cycle of poverty and made worse by the climate crisis, while everyone who is rich enough to move inland or to other places will be able to continue to build wealth in their property and expand. Like, it's so clear as day that that's what's where the path we're heading on. And yet we're not really hearing any solutions coming from government at all. Yeah. And what what are they saying now that the amount of climate refugees by 2030 will be around 30 million people? That's the population of Canada. So literally people are displaced because of the climate crisis. Do we even have the social safety mechanisms within all of our society internationally to actually give meaningful lives to these people? And also, do we have the cultural and societal attitudes that will prevent the racism that is going to inevitably unfold with all these climate immigrants and these climate refugees? Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, the refugee number is only only counts people who are displaced outside of their own country. It doesn't even include yeah. internal re- internal displacement, which will have a whole other impact. <laughs> um, but I did tease there because I do think it's really interesting because you came at this, as you mentioned, not so much from an environment background, but also you went to school to do biz- doing business and commerce. And so I'm curious how that actually interplays and impacts how you see the world. It does a lot. I also came into business school very much by accident as well. I actually wanted to go into the arts and social work, but as some immigrant parents might suggest that it's impractical. And I really knew that I wanted to go into nonprofit work. And I've been, and I spoke to so many of my mentors already in the space of, okay, what's useful for a nonprofit and a social impact organization if that's something that I would want to do in the future? And a lot of them recommended that, you know, a lot of nonprofits and social impact places, they're really good at visioning, strategizing and this policy game. But oftentimes management and, you know, having the business know how to actually run those organizations, that skill set sometimes isn't quite there. So I knew from the get go that those are the skills that I wanted to bring to the table. And then throughout my university degree, it was really fascinating because my university was very much so funded by oil and gas. They had like the the, the Husky room, the Shell room, the Suncor room, like everything, the board of directors, the content. I remember they were very pro-pipeline, all these kinds of things. And so it was actually very difficult at the time to have climate 
in my purview and within my radar. But I did a lot to actually do some work on social entrepreneurship and systems thinking. And that's when I got into this world. All my classes happened to be in social entrepreneurship. And I think a very critical point was when I did an exchange in Rotterdam at the Erasmus Institute. And I took policy development courses on political will and identity politics. And then I just found that there was such interplay between businesses and public policy that I knew I really wanted to enter that space. So while I come, I think maybe with a very pragmatic, how are we going to maintain the movement types of mentality and very much like, give me the numbers, give me the impact, give me the operational plan, give me X, Y, Z. It's paired with this idea of systemic change and systems thinking that inevitably can complement those types of business acumen skills. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense given sort of the work that you're now doing. Like, I feel like having to take that systems lens approach to tackling the climate crisis more generally is a big part of your actual work. So for folks who don't know what the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship is and does, can you can you tell us? Yes, absolutely. So the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship, or FES, we are a youth-led, youth-serving organization that aims to see by 2030, we work to ensure that Canada is implementing projects in alignment with a climate fair, just, and resilient future through the action and influence of young leaders. Because it is when active youth, youth activism is seen, scaled, and sustained that we can actually see changes in the political will, the cultural shifts, the attitudes that will allow and empower decision makers and policymakers to implement these different climate resilient ideas. My, my theory is that we have the capital, we have the technology, we just don't have the political will that really pushes people to make these decisions rapidly and act with this mindset of it is a crisis and it is an emergency. And we do this through predominantly our Youth Harbor program, where we pool philanthropic funds from, from donors, from private foundations, from the government of Canada, and we re-grant it to youth-led climate movements and particularly grassroots movements. And the whole idea of this is trying to shift philanthropy, trying to go get into trust-based philanthropy, and also realizing that the type of resources that we provide youth have to be fit for purpose for the youth that we're trying to serve. Like youth movements are very responsive, they're quick, they're fast moving, they're ever-changing, and therefore the types of supports that are provided have to match the speed by which youth actually move. So aside from the, the pooling funds and re-granting them, we do what I call the unsexy parts of youth organizing. So this is where my background comes in. So the administrative work, the, the bookkeeping, the, the contracts review, the employment stuff, the um, HR work, navigating CR, CRA regulations, legality, and then doing that kind of the work so youth grassroots organizations can really just focus on mission. Because there's nothing more, I would say, heartbreaking for youth-led climate activists to tell them that they have to learn how to bookkeep in order to maintain their organization. Yeah, for sure. And so there's there's two little things there I want, I want to tease out because I, I find them really interesting. The first is you mentioned sort of a trust-based process. How do you think about that and how do you build trust within your engagements with youth organizations? I think sometimes the question is complicated and the answer is quite simple. You build trust by developing relationships with community and you can't really build relationships if you're not really actively participating within your communities and creating an environment where they feel that whatever opinions, perspectives that they share with you is kept in a safe and private space and, and, and slash or their opinions are actually utilized within the space in a meaningful way. It's good to have like positive feedback loops, really clear like feedback mechanisms, but also honestly, just showing up, just, you know, going to the event that you fund, or if you want to learn about somebody, getting a coffee with them. I think trust is one of those things that develops over time. And for example, I, I tell this to a lot of people, if you're in person with somebody, the goal isn't necessarily to develop the biggest project on earth. The goal is to develop connection because connection is kind of this foundation towards action and trust obviously, is, is a huge tenant of that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that dovetails interesting to my next question that we'll go to before we go to our first music break, which is one of the fascinating challenges with youth climate work in particular is that every four or five years, the youth change over. Like, you can only build trust with youth climate organizations for a short period of time until you have to do it again because who is youth changes over and over. And... 
I've seen it time and time again. There's like waves of activism, you know, like there's a, there's a wave of youth activism and you get a group of people who are like meet each other at the right time and really push for something. And then they age out of it. And maybe there's a, a lull for a while until another set of youth come come through. And so trying to maintain and consistently build that trust with sort of this ever-changing youth activist sphere is feels like a particular challenge. It is a challenge, but I think that's also a symptom of a faulty of a faulty system. And the reason being is that, you know, youth organizing, it they respond to moments, right? And that's honestly by necessity. A lot of youth climate justice organizations and grassroots initiatives just aren't properly sustained to actually move beyond that. So the expectation is that youth can self-organize and self-organizing takes a lot of work. And then they they go through this social justice movement and this, this wave of activism, and then it kind of grinds at a halt. But what we're seeing when we say, quote unquote, grinds to a halt, it means that youth that I know of have actually actively sought funding, supports to maintain their campaigns. And they have been met with resistance from the funder and philanthropic community saying that, no, what you're good at is just existing for a little bit. And then inevitably that that resistance and that piece of activism dies. So it's really interesting. I think only very recently has the Canadian philanthropic world kind of shifted to see that actually being able to transition these organizations it's hugely impactful in allowing for longevity, points of contact. The Foundation for Environmental Stewardship, for example, we, I, I was a successor to its founder. These Climate Lab successfully did a transition. City Hive successfully tra- did a transition. But these are a few of hundreds of organizations that had asked for it and did not receive. And then at the same time, I think the other thing that I would just say about youth and climate organizing is... I think a lot of people, the way that they approach youth-led activism and collaborating with it is they see one person as kind of this representative of youth-led climate organizing. It's the person organizing the march with the megaphone screaming and and, and advocating for, for what youth want. But at the same time, everybody wants to partner with this one person because this is a popular young person to have Greta Thunberg of these protests. And they don't really think about this overarching lens of who are we how are we actually meaningfully incorporating youth into the space? What are the systems within our organization that allows for younger folks to enter? Because when we become fixated on a, a character of a person versus the movement itself, that's when we get into the issues that you described, this unsustainability of engaging with you. I so much want to dive into this, that piece of it about sort of the way we build up specific sort of heroes and that individualism really harms our ability to to understand the sort of ecosystem that makes that even possible. You know, like even Greta Thunberg is a much more complicated story than people understand. Like, it's not like Greta Thunberg was out there and just did it and became famous. Like the entire ecosystem was around this person in attempting to try to use this idea to sort of push forward, which was successful. But but in some ways, that's almost even hijacking that individualism to try to push something to the mainstream. But it is true. Like you see time and time again how like a few people become sort of the voices and that really does limit, I think, even the population's understanding. We as environmentalists and as as movements have a hard time even breaking into the understanding of the general population that these are movements and it's not just single charismatic people. You know, like even when you look back in history, like you get these stories of like Martin Luther King. It's like, yes, Martin Luther King, amazing individual, but like one man in a massively organized, coordinated effort. And it's an impossible task for the person that is nominated without their consent into their role. So we and the perception is that we have these leaders that they self-elect and they're heroes. But the reality is, is that that's an impossible task to then be you know, assigned the role of representing a movement. No wonder you sort of burning out so easily because funders and other angles rely so heavily on having somebody represent everyone and everything that just perpetuates this problem. Yeah. And my, my, in my experience with media is that like if a media messages you, they want someone to say something to you within 23 minutes. You know, like I, I'm i like the communications person for a, a group here in Toronto and I have never been given more than a day to find someone to speak on a thing. It's almost always like two hours. And so you can very easily, that structure very easily starts forcing individual people who've done it before in front of the microphone again and again, because they're not 
going to find the random person who has now a media training or feels comfortable doing that. And because the media does not care. They just want the soundbite from the person they know so they can run their story. That's like a privileged question, too, I think. Like only some people can drop everything at the drop of a hat and just hop on media. And then, you know, also, you know, there's language barriers involved. There's so many different things in the way that we approach, like the way that we celebrate heroes and activism. It's it, it's just a, it's, it's a hyper individualistic approach that really disadvantages other folks that are wanting to get more involved in this space. For sure. And when we come back from the music break, we will talk, talk about the exact opposite of this, which is the power of community. So enjoy this music break and we'll be right back with Kat Kadungog, the executive director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship. Be right back. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which found anywhere podcasts can be found. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and if you're just joining us, we are here with Kat Kandungug, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship, and we're talking about youth, climate activism, and the overall systems that we live in. And so, Kat, I'm really interested, actually, because A, you come from a systems lens, as we discussed in the first half, and B, with your role at FES is obviously sort of a systems role. It, you, your job is sort of to see the overarching system and, and begin to try to you know, find these ways to connect things. And so one of the things that I've become a little bit obsessed with, I will say, over the past few years is the role of community. In specifically the role of community acting as infrastructure. Because to me, like if we're going to break out of the problem systems that we have, you need so much infrastructure, right? Like capitalism, colonialism has a ton of infrastructure. Our entire banking sector, for example, the like industry upon industry exists as infrastructure for, you know, colonial capitalism. And so we, to, as a movement, have to have similar infrastructure if we're going to be able to begin to dismantle this, else either people will be left behind or we just won't have the power itself to be able to shift. And so I'd be curious to know how you think about this act of building infrastructure and the role that community plays you know, in that, in that piece. There are so many ways to, t to talk about this. And then it's... I'm going to say many things and let me know what sticks here. But I think one of the things that I like to to think about when I think about community infrastructure is that because something is a community and something's cohesive, it means that the roles are very clear within the community. You know, you know, who's the bake shop, who's the butcher, who, who's X, Y, Z. And I think a lot of times when you think about the social impact, social impact sector, our community is is not organized. And I say this in, in, the, in the most loving and genuine way possible, but everyone's so excited about getting to the systemic root of the problem that when they try to develop a solution for the problem, they try to become responsible for every single aspect of the problem. And I actually think that's very supposedly dangerous to different cultures. Like even if we look at, you know, the indigenous ways of being, you know, there, there were very clear roles in society, who are the gatherers, who are the hunters, who are the caretakers. For the knowledge keepers, you know, what, what kind of uh, bands were they in? What kind of group were they in? 
And if we take and model that and look into the social impact sector, there's not really clear identified roles within our infrastructure about who's doing what. There's a book called How to Rock the Boat Without Getting in Trouble or something to that degree. And there's a chart by Meg Wheatley, a really amazing leadership speaker. And she talks about to create systems change, you need all of these kinds of people to reach a transformative and tipping point. And it outlined very clearly who these types of people could be. You have your champions and your disruptors. You have your alternate visionaries. You have your hospice workers. You have the disruptors, but also the receptors. Like who's on the inside infiltrating these spaces and who is responsible for that? Who is the bridging innovator that is connecting the disruptor and the infiltrator? And think until we have the infrastructure where we can set that up. It's very difficult to actually develop systems change because everyone's trying to do everything. And sometimes the narrow focus does allow for expertise to happen. I will say, though, but at the same time, the reason that it's so difficult to develop that infrastructure is because there's a lack of foundational resources to set that up. We live in a very, you know, capitalistic society. You're competing for everything. There's this scarcity mindset. Right. Everyone wants to do everything because they believe that if they don't do everything, then somebody else is going to get the money. So we create infighting within our own systems. And I think that's by design by the capitalistic system to make ourselves infight so we don't get anything done. And I think that this infrastructure can't really be built until we go to community first and we say, what do you need to get your narrow job done and developing a trust space within our community that I can trust this other organization to do their work well? And I'll do my work well, and then we'll work in cohesion with each other. And to create infrastructure, because we live in a capitalistic society, you need money. But I think at the same time, people that are the bank accounts or that hold the money for the social impact sector, they are so risk averse. Despite having to basically, you know, do systems transformation to change these wicked problems, the people that are supposedly meant to fund these groups are so conservative. They're so impact-based. You don't see this in like maybe a lot of venture capitalist firms and incubators and angel investors. You don't even see that level of due diligence in those kinds of aspects when they're trying to get investment in a type of soda. Yet, you know, in this space where we're trying to transform systems, we're not given the same opportunity and the same level of funding to do just that. So I think there's a mismatch between who's meant to be responsible for developing community infrastructure And then at the same time, like how ready we are within our social impact community to set that same infrastructure up. Man, those are like five very good points. And (laughs) the the one that I want to take for a second is this this point you make about how much looser with money the capitalist system can be for weird startups than anything I've ever experienced in the social... Uber lost $30 billion and like only recently made any money at all. I think Mm -hmm. Amazon lost billions of dollars for like 10, 15 years. Can you imagine if we put $30 billion into any one of the social movements that we like see fighting for, you know, the scraps that are available to people? Like the biggest grants you could even think about in the social sector right now are like a hundred, maybe $200,000. The moment any money gets beyond that, it's seen as a huge deal. And yet, basically, taxis via app is worth $30 billion to light on fire to throw into it before it even makes any money at all. And it's like, that's the kind of money that you need to have that kind of change. And that kind of change isn't even like that monumental. Uber hasn't changed our lives dramatically. It is slightly different way to get a taxi. Okay. But like... It, it has permeated the you know the world in a, in a in a way it's exists everywhere, and you can imagine similar things are possible. But yeah, you have to unlock like transformative amounts of money, which just no one is willing to to put up. And it's and I think compounding on this problem too. I I just love the I love this example and talking about it is that you know funders often give money that only lasts for a year. And then they expect you to, you know, take that money and change the world with it. And if they don't, they move on to the next thing only for a year. They don't change the world with it. And we just don't have this radical investment in our social systems. And also, I think obviously it's changing now. But once again, it's by design. Like the Canada Revenue Agency declined an organization's application for a registered charity status or to change their charitable purposes or basically describing what they do in the eyes of the CRA. 
they're, they were not allowed to say that they wanted to eradicate poverty. They can only say they wanted to alleviate poverty because they say eradicating it will harm the rich, basically, is effectively what they said. And I think when we have systems that perpetuate and enforce that, and ultimately we get down to the bottom line, they want poverty to always a little bit exist. We have to question, like, we're relying on these systems that are built not to represent what the future we want is going to turn out and shape into. Yeah. And, and you see that everywhere, right? Like so few charitable or nonprofit sectors really seem to feel like they're trying to make themselves irrelevant, right? Like yeah. so it becomes so quickly about trying to survive and keep your own people employed and keep doing the work you're doing that like the real systemic changes that might actually mean you don't have to exist anymore at all are are not championed because they don't fit your current model that allows you to exist or what you, the work you're doing. They might undermine the work that you're doing because, you know, because solving the problem would mean you're have to go off and do something else. And that's a hard thing for people to begin to sort of see. Yeah, I was on a panel the other day and this is a quick anecdote, but I got into a little bit of a, of a tiff with one of the panelists because he said something along the lines of, I, I was basically challenging people to spend down and spend more money and, and put more money into the social impact sector as everybody should. And he responded by saying he was fundamentally offended that I could suggest that X foundation should never exist and cease to exist because then that would let down so many people as this one CEO is paid $400,000 a year. And then it was interesting because I said, if you're more radically upset by your organization closing, then radically upset about the fact that people are on the street dying, feeling the impacts of the climate crisis, that you are willing to just maintain an organization rather than actually solve the problem and work yourself into obscurity, then you have to fundamentally question why are you, you are in the social impact space. Yeah, I mean, 100%, right? Like, if you are a person working on climate change, you have to know that every dollar spent now is worth 10, 20, 30, $100 spent in the next 10, 20 years. Like the science has become very, very clear <laughs> that like, you know, the IPPC came out a report a couple of years ago saying you have 10 years. And so the idea for me that there's so many people trying to maintain their existence of a as a foundation working on climate change, for example, that is not just being like, if you're going to spend radically, the more impact you make right now, you will get way more bang from your buck. Because like every, every change now has monumentally more impact in the coming decade. And so like in the same way that when oil companies are like, oh, yeah, I expect to still be pumping the same amount of oil in 2050 as I am now, which is basically climate denial. A foundation working on climate change that says, I expect to still be funding climate mitigation efforts in 2050 or 2075 is in some way also saying you're preparing to lose and preparing for a world that will be terrible to live in. Yes. <laughs> Yes, 100%. Yes. Drop the mic, Stefan. We're done here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to a slightly more positive yes. side of things, which is the, the people that you get to work with every day and the, the, the youth movement that exists today, which I think, you know, again, I have come through, I'm now 34, so I'm no longer, I think, youth in most understandings, but I'm still close enough to remember the time in university and sort of the, the, the first sort of the push for for fossil fuel divestment and things like that. And so I'm curious how you sort of see the role of youth in the climate movement. So first of all, you're still considered youth under the UN Declaration of what is considered youth, so 35 and under. So it's definitely right into that. Got like seven months. Well, but back to what's the role of youth in the climate movement? I mean, there has been no social justice movement that has not been accompanied complemented by a really strong and underlying youth-led movement. You look at civil rights movements, you look at women's suffrage, you look at the strikes for Black Lives Matter, you look at the Arab Spring, you look at Tiananmen Square. Oftentimes, the center of these protests and these great people power movements really started with student unions, they started with grassroots organizing, they started with high schools, they started with youth-led organizations. Because you really can't have a good inside game where you're changing systems 
if once again, you don't have this really strong outside game as well. People on the inside are not motivated to change anything as long as they can retain, if, the, if it means that they retain their positions of power. What is the most threatening to them is if there's a strong proletariat and community that says we will usurp you unless you make a change. And that is what youth is very good at. The political will, the culture shifts, the societal t- changes, the, the, the shaming you out of bad behaviors. I mean, high school students are, are severe. Like they scare me sometimes. And if that's what they're good at, that's why we really need the youth climate movement in this space. Another reason to include them in the space is that youth are an amazing leverage point for talking to older generations. There's one thing for me, a very clear climate activist to go up to sort of Suncor CEO or the Husky CEO or whatever CEO and say, I demand to speak with you about climate change. I will probably get laughed out and thrown out of the building. It is another thing to take their child and a person that they feel an emotional connection to, bring them to that door and have them ask the same question. And I think when we engage with youth, there's, you know, this opportunity to really be able to see what are, how our decisions are impacting future generations. And that's why I think systemically, we also just need to invite more youth into the room, not just youth that are 18 and over, but also really young people into the room, because that really challenges to look our, our children in, in the eye and say, is this decision really in best service for your resilient future? Yeah, for sure. And so I want to get a couple more youth related questions, but we'll do so after the music break. So stick with us. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe find us on the podcast, which found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and if you're just joining us, I am here with Kat Kandongog, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship, which focuses working with youth. And so you've spent your time last few years doing this work and talking, I presume, to many, many youth climate activists and climate (laughs) organizers. And so I'm curious, you know, if if you could speak to them, you know, this station is based on a radio campus or or on a campus. So like the airwaves are are flush with with recent graduates or, or university students. And so I'm curious what kind of advice you would give to young people who are, you know, interested in learning, getting involved, but maybe don't see a way in or or curious how they can sort of make an impact. Being in the climate movement can mean whatever you want it to be. I think everyone thinks that being in the climate movement means that you have to be on the streets, you have to be talking to government officials, you have to know all of the science. I didn't come from an environmental science degree. I, I don't really, well, obviously I know the science, but I'm certainly not an expert person that can provide a peer-reviewed article to you. But being in the climate movement can mean whatever you want it to be. And I think to illustrate this, I'll just share an anecdote with one of my best friends that works in insurance. And she works for a very large insurance firm that, that insures really large oil and gas projects, energy projects, basically you name it. And she was telling me that she really wants to quit her job to do something more impactful and more meaningful and do advocacy work and do finance and ops for an organization. And I told her, friend, the biggest thing that you can do as a climate activist is to not approve these pipelines to be insured. 
that is actually, you know, an incredible amount of impact that you can have. And maybe you're not involved in the climate movement in a traditional sense, but certainly you can find all aspects of any type of career where you can integrate climate movement principles and justice principles into your work. The other thing that I will say is just dream big and demand more and try things out. We have many people, as Obama talked in talked about in his recent interview with LinkedIn, that there's really good people that are great at hypothesizing, articulating problems. But we need right now people that are good at implementing solutions. And we need people to try and pivot, see if things fail, and then also be able to learn from those experiences and try again. Dream big and demand more. We are in a scarcity mindset in the world right now, but there are so many people with money. So, so, so many people. Money is out there and let your ambition fly using an abundance mindset, not with a scarcity mindset. Because if you invite a scarcity mindset in, chances are that whatever project you will propose will not actually meet the demand of what the climate movement needs right now. Yeah. Another way I've thought about that a bit is around this term, the imagination deficit. Because like mm-hmm. I feel like we are so good at imagining so many things. You know, you can imagine a any number of apocalyptic scenarios. And yet you don't really see a lot of imaginative futures that aren't apocalyptic. You know, we yeah. really are in a very low utopian society time like people are not imagining and not being given the space to imagine futures that are abundant we we really are lacking despite the fact that like arguably you know wind and solar are now cheaper than every other form of energy and so like in like which is something that forever we were told was going to be a huge problem for trying to do transition was it was too expensive and now it is demonstrably cheaper, and yet still we're told it can't happen for X, Y, Z reason. You know, like we really are constantly being told that we don't have that ability to do something. And and that's a really hard thing to navigate. It is, especially what's happening in Alberta right now of folks oh just blocking <laughs> any infrastructure that's happening. And it just goes to show who has the most impact in our government systems and the time and the money to actually engage. Like, I think during COVID-19 was the most money that oil and gas had ever spent lobbying federal government. And there is a reason why, because they are threatened by this idea of renewable energy and a transition that, quote unquote, moves too fast, as if we should, as if we're not moving quickly enough. So it's a really fascinating, fascinating space to be in. Yeah, for sure. And I like a little bit what you said at the beginning there, too, in terms of finding your own space, because that links back a little bit to your comments previously about, about lacking identified roles. And we we don't do a good job giving people an understanding of all of these different types of roles. And even as you described what you described there, like some people work on the outside, some people work on the inside, et cetera, more often than not, in our current system, it feels like even within those people, there's a lot of fights, right? Like it becomes almost like if you are inside the system, you're selling out. And if you're outside the system, you're not doing enough or you don't, not, don't take it seriously or whatever. And so like we, these these needed roles in different spaces are managed to be pitted against one another as if like it's not all needed. Yeah. And it's by design. It's kind of like comparing this to like racial segregation and this idea of othering and making sure that there's infighting within the community so that privileged folks can't, they, they don't have to feel a certain because it's not a unified effort against them. And, and it's very much by design. And I just see so much opportunity and just people just coming together. And, you know, there's the case of destinationalists versus directionalists. So destinationalists say that Everything that we do has to entirely reflect the future that we want. This is a great orientation, but can sometimes lead to this moral stonewalling that you won't really engage with anybody that doesn't fully represent and align with your values and and, and what you see as a climate resilient future versus directionalists. They basically are, are along the orientation that as long as we're moving towards a direction, the same direction in a meaningful way towards the destination, then we're we're moving. We're, we're getting there. That doesn't mean we're, we're straying, but we're, we're pointing towards a solution. And I think we've, we now have these camps within the climate movement of destinationalists 
versus directionalists or perfectionists versus momentum builders. And I think we just are in this reality right now where there needs to be more dialogue between them. A hundred percent. And so I want to flip the script before we come to the end here, which is so often I feel like we ask or when I'm having these conversations, it's like useful, I think, to give young people tips. Because like I remember being a young person trying to get into climate change. And I remember it feeling like people always tell you to get involved and then give you no pathways to involvement, right? Like, it's just sort of like, this is generic getting involved somehow like falls on your getting involved hat. And suddenly now you're involved and like no one gives you any reasonable way of moving into it. But, but I do think the flip is also true, which is that like, again, as you said, young organizers have been at the forefront of almost every movement. And so what do you think the sort of more institutionalized organizations could learn you know, from the youth activist movement right now? That is a great question. I thought I thought on this, but I think, I think with institutional organizations and NGOs, the things that they can really learn from the youth-led climate movement is that think tanks are important, but community consultation is more important. This idea that what youth-led climate organizers are really good at is developing solidarity with community because it is when you lean on community that you don't need to have your revolution be funded by these funders. And you can do things that are sourced from your actual community rather than having to rely on funding. So it's almost, I, I'm always hesitant to, word, to use the word bootstrappy side of things, but I think what youth are really good at is kind of taking a concept and a community and just just getting engaged and just doing something and starting something and knowing that you know the thing itself does not have to be perfect to have it be impactful and they're also very good at listening to community i think we have a system right now with our social impact sector where it's very a top, it's very much so a top down approach there is a there is a group of experts and professionals that prescribe the solutions to all the climate movement's problems. And they say, we have authority because we have this top-down authority because we are experts in the space, which is only part true. But authority from a youth-led and grassroots perspective actually just really comes from the bottom up. You don't have authority or power over any group unless you're kind of elected by this group to actually maintain that power and that authority. And with that type of system, it's entirely different. Because it means you have no right to dictate how these things work if community is not involved in every single step of the way. And I think this is where institutions are failing. They're positioning themselves as experts, the know-it-alls. They know how to dictate youth X, Y, Z. But the reality is, is that we are not engaging with stakeholders that are going to be most impacted by the crisis. And whatever you prescribe top-down will always be out of touch with the communities that you're seeking to serve. I love it. You managed to bring both community and youth into that same answer. So huge kudos <laughs> to you. So I want to get one last systems question into you before we sort of get to how folks can follow along and, and learn, which is that you exist in this role that is so systems level. You've you've been there for a bit of time. You've sort of gotten to sort of see the shifts over COVID. And you know, before we even start recording, you sort of were noting that like it feels like things are beginning to ramp up again in a little bit of a bit of a way. And so I'm curious from that landscape that you're sort of looking down on the bird's eye view, what opportunities or, or trends are you seeing? Like if you were someone sort of getting to them now or, or sort of seeing how the things are shifting, you know, what are you seeing? I am seeing the development of a really strong outside game. There's kind of maybe the perception is that there's a lull in organizing within Canada. But what I see is that everyone's getting ready for the next thing. I mean, this next election is coming up next year pretty soon. Everyone's sharing lists. They are training organizers. There are people on the ground because fundamentally, once again, we have the technology, we have the solutions, we, we know the science, we have the capital, we just don't have the political will. And there's many collaborations happening within the, the environmental, non-government organization communities, among youth-led communities, communities themselves that are organizing to change the political will within these different centers. I will also say that there are movements right now to really engage more heavily in rural areas, trying to address this urban and rural divide that we so, so strongly have within Canada. There's definitely an opposition and tension between urban centers and rural centers as well. And I think I just want to reiterate it one more time, is that this emphasis on community-led 
projects. So far, once again, with this top-down approach, people have been prescribing solutions to different communities without actually engaging with them. However, what we're seeing now is that more foundations, more funders, more groups are working directly with communities to co-design climate action projects so they're fit for purpose to where that community actually is. Amazing. And so if people want to follow along or get to know more of of your work and the foundation's work, how can they do that? So visit us at theyouthharbor.org. That's where we have most of our organizations like grants, supports, all these kinds of things that you can access. We have a grant that's open right now called the Assembly Grant. So if you're planning any type of in-person convening, this is our easiest application yet. You can get anywhere between $500 and $5,000 just to do some in-person rest work, climate work, advocacy work, all that kind of work. You can find the link on our Instagram account at the Youth Harbor. And then finally, we're going through another website launch as well. I think I said go to our website, but BT Dubs, that website's being revamped. Follow us on LinkedIn. You can follow the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship. And if you want to apply for a grant for up to $50,000, you can do that through the Youth Harbor. The deadline is sometime in November. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. And I hope people will share this with any young or old person who is working on climate. Because I do think that the perspective that you brought is is so great to hear and so useful to sort of get a, a sense of where we're at right now. Especially as you noted, as we're gearing up for something like the next couple of years have to be transformative. And so hopefully we can get a lot, get enough people on side, including these foundations and other sort of institutional funders to make to make significant change. But thanks for joining us. This has been Kat Kandagog, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship. We are the Green Majority. Check them out and have a wonderful day. 